Well, amen. It is good to be gathered with God's people, isn't it? We're going to be in Exodus chapter 16 this morning. Exodus chapter 16. Most sun that thudded a lot more than I expected. Most Sundays we would be dismissing our kindergarten to third graders to go to children's church uh, at this particular juncture. But on the fourth and fifth Sunday, we all stay together as one big, happy, fidgety, loud family. And so uh, if you're here and you have kids that are in that age bracket, there are some bags that have uh, uh, some ways they can follow along with the sermon, sermon notes and things like that uh, out the doors to my right, your left. You're welcome to go and grab one of those. Uh, to help kids follow along. Um, if uh, you uh, are, again, if you're a parent of, of a kid in that age bracket, don't stress because there are a few more little squeaks and fidgets and things like that coming from your pew this morning. Um, we view kids as a blessing here. We are thankful for the kids that God has entrusted us to disciple. And so we're excited that we have extra folks in the room today. And if you don't have kids here today, also don't be stressed by the few extra perhaps distractions that come from the pews around you. Uh, we'll roll with it, uh, we'll be excited about it, uh, and we will get uh, into God's Word together. I shared with folks at members meeting last week that I'm as excited right now as I have ever been about what God is doing in the life of First Baptist Church. God is growing our family in incredible ways. Is this guy still on maybe? Is that my problem? I'm echoey. I'm getting a signal from upstairs, but I can't see what you're telling me to do. Switch my switch. Switch my switch. That sounds like something I should know how to do. Switching my switch. The Lord does miracles. <laughs> thank you, Cam. All right, is that better? Perfect. Okay, thank you. All right, uh, we'll get this whole technology thing figured out. Uh, it's They're great upstairs. It's usually me. That is the problem. And so, um, as I said, God is growing our, our church in ways that, uh, that are just incredible. We have more people engaged in Bible study right now uh, through Sunday school, through Bible studies that happen on Saturday morning and Sunday night, and in people's homes throughout the week. We've got more adults engaged in Bible study right now than we did before COVID. Uh, we've got leaders who have been leading in areas uh, of our church for, um, for really decades in some areas that continue to lead and lead uh, strongly. We've got new leaders stepping up in other areas um, and starting new ministries and picking up the mantle from leaders who've been leading well for a long time. We've got new people showing up all the time to get plugged into what, is God, uh, what God is doing here. And in 2021, last, uh, sorry, uh, uh, 2022, last year, during a time when many churches like ours are struggling to bounce back from the pandemic and all the other stuff, that went along with that. Our active membership, so the people who are part of the First Baptist family um, who are here on a regular basis, um, that group of people grew by over 10% last year, and so we're thankful for what God is doing. One of my favorite parts of that growth of new people coming into the church is getting to know those new people. I love to sit down at a table or in your living room or at a restaurant or in my office just to, just to chat, just to get to know you, get to know who you are and where you came from and what made you the way you are, and there's some people, Bob, who I'm still trying to figure out what made you the way you are, but for the most part, those are good uh, and encouraging conversations, and I'm grateful to get to do that, and we can kind of get to do the same thing with Israel as we study Exodus. We get to find out what made the Israelites the way that they are. We're learning their hearts. We're learning who they are and how they react to different situations, and we've learned, for one thing, their malcontents, right? 
They have a propensity to grumble, to brood. We learned a couple of weeks ago that they get hangry when they are hungry. And I don't know about you, but I am unfortunately seeing a lot of myself in the Israelites. I think God has pointed out these things on purpose for us too. You see, discontentment is the core issue on display in Exodus 15 and 16. Israel was so discontent with God's provision in our last text that they had the audacity to think that they would be better off as slaves in Egypt than they were in freedom in the desert with God leading them. And God points out to us the cure for discontentment in our passage today. We're going to see it together as we read from Exodus chapter 16, beginning in verse 21, and we'll read through the end of the chapter. This is God's word says this, they gathered it every morning, it being manna, they gathered it every morning, each gathered as much as he needed to eat, so when the sun grew hot, it melted. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much food, four quarts apiece, and all the leaders of the community came and reported this to Moses. He told them, this is what the Lord has said, tomorrow is a day of complete rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you want to bake and boil what you want to boil and set aside everything left over to be kept until morning. So they set it aside until morning, as Moses had commanded, and it didn't stink or have maggots in it. Eat it today, Moses said, because today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you won't find any in the field. For six days you will gather, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will be none. Yet on the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they did not find any. Then the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commands and instructions? Understand, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he will give you two days' worth of bread. Each of you are to stay where you are. No one is to leave his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. The house of Israel named the substance manna. It resembled coriander seed, was white, and tasted like wafers made with honey. Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Two quarts of it are to be preserved throughout your generations, so they may see the bread I fed you in the wilderness where I brought you out of the land of Egypt. When Moses told Aaron, take a, cor- a container and put two quarts of manna in it and place it before the Lord to be preserved throughout your generations, as the Lord commanded Moses, Aaron placed it before the testimony to be preserved. The Israelites ate manna for 40 years until they came to an inhabited land They ate manna until they reached the border of Canaan. They used a measure called an omer, which held two quarts. This is God's word. Would you pray with me over the reading of it? Father, we come before you today grateful that you have given us your good and perfect word. Lord, it is the firm foundation on which we build our lives. God, the truth that's contained in it, it's the only truth that we could find in the world. And we evaluate all other truths by the truth of your scripture. And so, God, we pray today that you would help us to hide your word in our hearts. Help us to believe your word, to understand your word. And as we study this passage in particular, God, teach us to trust. Lord, I think we would all admit to seeing a little bit of ourselves in Israel. We find ourselves from time to time discontent. We find ourselves doubting. We find ourselves not fully trusting 
that you're really going to take care of us when it comes down to us, that you're really going to come through, God. We, we want to grasp at the straws. We want to keep just a little bit of control, God, because we, we feel on some level like we still have to take care of ourselves. God, help us to see through your word today how, how we really can let go and trust you, how whatever wilderness that we're currently walking through, God, you were the one leading us through it, and you have promised to provide. Truly great is your faithfulness, God. We sang it, and Lord, through your Holy Spirit, based on the truth of your word, help us to believe it, hide it on our hearts, as we apply it every day in your Son's name. And all God's people said, Amen. Well, when I say discontentment, here's what I mean, just so we're clear. A discontent heart is marked by, by complaining, by worrying, by anxiety, by uh, preoccupation with stuff that we don't have, by greed, by jealousy, by just a lack of satisfaction, a critical nature, a regular feeling of disappointment in life. I think that's what Israel's behavior reveals to us over the last couple of chapters that they are experiencing. And I'm not saying that you're a discontented person, if you occasionally experience these things, because I think from time to time all of us would occasionally admit to feeling some doubt, to feeling some anxiety, to feeling some jealousy, maybe a lack of satisfaction. But we do need to ask the Holy Spirit to reveal our own hearts to us sometimes, and occasionally he does that uh, through the people who are sitting beside us in this room. We need our own heart revealed to us. And here's the core struggle for the discontented hearts that I'm convinced all of us at least have the seed of living inside of us. Do we trust God or not? You see, discontent is the photo negative of trust. It's the other side of the coin. Do we trust that God is the God who provides what we need? It's right there in verse 28. He says, how long... Will you refuse to keep my commands and my instructions? All the commandments, God, all, all the truths, all the, the things that God had told Israel to do in this chapter and the last, they were all about trust. Go and gather enough for today. Trust that I'm going to provide for tomorrow. Go throw the, the tree into the water of the spring of Merah because I'm going to provide you with clean water. Trust and obey and Israel over and over again say, yes, God, we trust you. We still just really think that we need to do things our own way. Now, with many of us, God has to take us through our own personal wilderness journey to get us to trust. And this passage can be an incredible starting point. And we start to find contentment in our hearts. We start overcoming discontent when we start trusting God even more. We're given three ways we can trust that God to overcome our discontentment here in the text. But before we get deeper into that, I just want to point out that there is a place for a, a, a legitimate discontentment in our lives. You see, we should all, on some level, be discontent with our spiritual growth. If we, if we allow ourselves to get comfortable, if we allow ourselves to get complacent, if we say, look, I know enough Scripture, I'm praying enough, I've grown enough, I'm engaged in ministry enough, then we'll stop growing. It's what we might call a prophetic discontentment with the sin that is around us, with the sin that is in our life. We should, we should be discontent with the state of our own heart when it comes to 
our hatred for our own sin. We should be discontent with our own level of personal holiness. We should want more of God. We should want to strive to grow. So that's not the discontentment in view here. See, at the heart of this passage is a sinful discontent that causes us to doubt God, to distrust God, and to disobey God. And the answer, church, is not to try harder to dig in deeper. It's not that. It's the, the answer to our discontentment. It's not more of us. It's more of God. And in the first ten verses, we're reminded to trust God's rest. You see, God has responded to Israel's discontent, to their grumbling, to their disobedience. Let's just call it what it is, right? God has responded to Israel's sin with patience. He gave them clean water. He gave them food. A miraculous uh, uh, whatever a herd of quail is called. Some of you will correct my science there later. But this herd of quail shows up in their camp for them to eat. He provided that. He provided bread from heaven. He gave them everything that they need. He even gave them instructions in verses 16 through 19. Go get what you need. Don't get any more. Don't hoard it. Don't keep it overnight. But they did. They went out and got more, and it spoiled, and that angered Moses in verse 20. You see, they were supposed to depend day by day on God's provision. It was an object lesson. The manna that fell from heaven was an object lesson in trusting God to meet their needs. The exception to that command was on the Sabbath day. If you look at verse 22, Moses writes, On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much food, four quarts apiece, and all the leaders of the community came and reported this to Moses. You see, there would be no manna, no bread falling from heaven on Saturday, on the Sabbath, the seventh day. God provided twice as much on Friday so they had to trust that what they gathered on Friday, if they kept it overnight, it wouldn't spoil like it would every other day. No, that what they gathered on Friday would be enough to get them through Saturday as well. You see, the Sabbath is about rest and trust. God says, keep my word, obey my law, and I'll take care of you. Follow me, and I'll take care of you. That's the principle. Nobody ever lost out because they keep the Sabbath day holy. That, and that truth is transferable, too. One of the things I appreciate uh, about the restaurant Chick-fil-A is that they're closed on Sunday. In fact, Stephen Pam Gordon won't eat today because Chick-fil-A is closed. That's their diet. They're on the all-Chick-fil-A diet. They've got a tour of the kitchen. People there know them by name. I think they have a bedroom in the back. I don't know how all that works, but... But I know some of our folks love Chick-fil-A even more than I do. They were founded by a Christian. They've kept a lot of their biblical values as the company has grown. And the Sabbath isn't Sunday. The Sabbath was Saturday. But they've kept that principle, right? They take a day to rest. And God has blessed them. In 2021, they did $5.8 billion in revenue. That's three times the revenue for Burger King, and they're open every day. Now, we're not here to compare Burger King to Chick-fil-A. Well, you just did, and you, you're right. But the math shouldn't work out that way, right? The founder of Chick-fil-A saw the importance of closing on Sunday so that he and his employees could set aside one day to rest and to worship if they so choose. And the business has been blessed, and I don't think it's just because the chicken is awesome. You see, no one misses out because they follow God's commands. Do you believe that? No one misses out. No one falls short. No one fails in any way because they follow God's command. The, the hesitation on the part of Israel here, I think, their, their fear, that is that they went out on Friday 
and they gathered the man. And they gathered enough to eat on Friday. They gathered enough to eat on Saturday. And they knew from experience that if they, were, if they kept anything overnight, any of this manna, that it would rot. That's what it did. And so their fear was that if we woke up Saturday morning, we wouldn't have any food. We, we, God's not going to rain down manna from heaven on Saturday. And so our, our fear, God, and we're going to go out and try to gather anyway, even though you've said nothing's coming, and our fear is that we're not going to have enough. And what God is saying is, if you follow me, I am enough. And it wasn't a new idea. It goes all the way back to cre- the creation order in Genesis 2. God himself rested on the seventh day. The Israelites, they'd been slaves of Egyptian overlords their whole lives, and they gave them no rest. In fact, they literally worked them to death. There was no Sabbath. One of the lessons of the Exodus is that God is a much more kind king. God is a better king. God is a better ruler than Pharaoh. And here God gives his people in their difficult and hard pilgrimage. Remember, we're, we're not far over a month removed from Israel being captive in Egypt to free in the desert. This had been a whirlwind. This had been a nightmare in a lot of ways. It had been a blessing in so many other ways. And God gives them rest. Tells them to stay home. Stay with your family. Take this day and rest. And the pattern of Sabbath rest was so important to God that, as you know, it's going to show up again in a few chapters when we get to the Ten Commandments. Rest isn't something I, I fear. Now, I, I, we, we know one another, right? We're among friends here. This is a safe place. Rest isn't something that us overworked and overbusy Missourians struggle with, is it? All of us take a weekly Sabbath, I'm sure. We take time off. None of us lost sleep over our jobs this week. None of us lost sleep over our families this week. None of us lost sleep over anxiety or any of those other things this week. Maybe not us, but certainly people around us struggle with rest, don't they? On average, American workers ended the year 2021 with nine and a half unused vacation days. Never, this is a spiritual principle that's outside the Bible, Never leave vacation days on the table. They're paying you to go away. Unless you're a college football coach, that's never going to happen ever again. Three of you got that. That's okay. But they're, they're paying you to go away. Use your vacation, church. God established a pattern of rest from the very beginning because you need rest, church. It's not just a health issue. It's a trust issue. Why don't we use our vacation? Why don't we rest? My fear is that it's because we don't trust that if we stop, if we slow down, if we take a break, that if we don't get it all done, if we don't check all the boxes, no one's coming behind us to pick up the slack. Maybe it's anxiety. You won't rest or you can't rest because you're too anxious. What happens if, what if this happens or what if that happens or I just can't rest because I can't find I'm afraid a lot of us struggle here because refusal to rest often comes down to trust. And we're not the first ones to struggle with it. On the seventh day, verse 28, some of the people went out to gather anyway. But of course, they didn't find any manna. This whole Sabbath mess, they thought it was far too restrictive. They took matters into their own hands and they're good hard workers and they went right back to the work of gathering. And this time, their work that was fruitful every other day of the week was worthless. See, lurking behind that disobedience is a lack of trust. They're discontent. They simply don't think that God's way 
is the best way. And if we're honest, I, I fear that's what we continue to think when we tell ourselves that God's law is unnecessary or unhelpful or outdated. We want more and we want it on our own terms. We're dissatisfied with God's pattern. But the point of our text, at least in this particular part of the passage, is to show us that Sabbath rest, far from restricting our freedom, far from causing us to miss out, far from limiting our joy, is intended to and actually helps us find contentment. Some of us need to find more by doing less. And here's the thing, on this side of the cross, because of the sacrifice Jesus made, God has given us a great deal of freedom when it comes to this idea of Sabbath and of rest. There's some disagreement here, even among Baptists, but virtually no Christian observes the Sabbath in the same way the Israelites of the Old Testament did. And there's a reason for that. Paul comes along, Colossians 2, and says, Therefore, don't let anyone judge you in regard to food and drink or in the matter of a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of what was to come. The substance is Christ. Jesus said in Matthew 5, he came to fulfill the law. And the Sabbath law is one of the laws that he came to fulfill. And we'll see just in a minute how that points us to the cross. But God has given us freedom from saying that you have to rest this specific day. I mean, many of you left your home yesterday, right? The, the, the Old Testament law tells us to stay in our home, to not go a certain distance out of our house, to not do any work on the seventh day, that is Saturday. By the way, the reason we meet on Sunday is that after Christ's resurrection, the church began gathering on the first day of the week, the day that Christ arose. And so that's why we're here today. Sunday isn't really the, the Sabbath day. And, and for some of you, you know, Sunday is really not a day of rest at all. I mean, parents, it's a miracle that some of you made it here this morning, right? To get all of your kids into the car and to be somewhere by nine without one of them going assassin on the other is a small miracle of God every week. So it may not be a day of rest for you. You see, for the Christian, the idea of Sabbath rest is a matter of a spiritual freedom, not a command from God. The principle is to trust God enough to prioritize rest, both mentally and physically. So church, do we trust God enough that you are prioritizing a time of rest as a part of your regular rhythm, as a part of your regular routine? God is saying to us here and everywhere in Scripture, I'm the one you need, not more. You don't need just one more email, one more project, one more field to plow. You need God. You need uh, No one ever lost out by obeying God. It's like if we don't get the work done, then we'll be less productive. But if we are sacrificing that productivity for kingdom productivity, for worship, we're not losing, we're growing. Church, order your life so that you are regularly free to rest in God. Honor God with your time. That's one of the ways that you do it. That's what it means when you say, Jesus is my Lord. It means He orders our days. He sets our schedule. Our time belongs to Him. Usually when we grow discontent with life, we think that the answer to that discontentment is more of us. And really it's less of us and more of Him. So do you have a, a regular time of rest, a regular Sabbath in your life? It doesn't have to be all day Saturday. It doesn't have to be Sunday. It's, it's, really, it's really what is God leading you to? Order your life in such a way that you have regular rhythms. Maybe it's 30 minutes every day. Maybe it's half a day on Saturdays. Maybe it's all day once a week. 
but order your life in such a way that rest is a regular part of it because people who trust in God don't work themselves to death. God freed us from that. Trust in God's rest. Church, a lot of us are tired. And we should be. We should, well, I'm not saying that we shouldn't work hard. We should work hard. We should end the day tired. But exhaustion is not what God calls us to. Order your life in such a way that you are taking Sabbath, that you are taking time not just to do nothing, but to do nothing, in re- to, to rest in reflecting in who God is. The Israelites didn't just sit around and stare at each other all day on the Sabbath. No, they worshipped. So take regular moments within your life to worship God. Next, we trust in God's record. Verse 31, the house of Israel named the substance manna. It resembled coriander seed, was white and tasted like wafers made with honey. Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Two quarts of it are to be preserved throughout your generations so that they may see the bread I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. I love that verse 31 is there, this description, because again, scientists, the thing that they do is they try to figure stuff out, which I appreciate them for. And, and they, they've looked at all the stuff that is naturally occurring around where these events happen. And they said, well, there's, this, there's a few things that could kind of fit uh, what manna was. We might have figured it out, but it really doesn't fit all the things. It's maybe not white like coriander seed. Maybe it doesn't taste like honey, to, to which I go, you think, because God made it rain miraculously from heaven. We're probably not going to find it out in the woods. So we see that this is a miracle. It's another illustration that God is doing something miraculous here. So the manna is a miracle, but it's also a memorial. When we want to remember something or someone, we, we build a statue or a monument, don't we? I mean, we have the Statue of Liberty, the Lincoln Memorial, the, the Vietnam Veterans Memorial, and some of the most iconic structures in America are memorials. And this manna became kind of a national memorial for God's people, eventually placed there with the Ark of the Covenant. It is to show that God came through, God provided. We were in the wilderness, and we didn't know how to feed ourselves. Some of you are Boy Scouts. And we could dro- take you out, we could drop you in the middle of the desert, and you would be fine. Me, on the other hand, you could take me out and drop me in the middle of the desert, and really all you need to do is just come back for the body in a few days, because I'm not going to make it very long. Israel was more like that than a Boy Scout, because they didn't have the training. They weren't a nomadic people. They were, in a lot of ways, an urban people dropped out into the wilderness, and God provided for them. And so this manna in this container, it was a memorial that, look, when we needed God the most, he came through. He fed us. He'll provide. Build your life on the foundation of his word, of what God tells us is true, and he will come through. Sometimes the memorial is manna. Sometimes it's an illness or it's a hardship. That's what it was for Paul. Here's what he told the church at Corinth. He said, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to torment me so that I would not exalt myself. Concerning this, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it would leave me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfected in weakness. Therefore, I will most gladly boast all the more about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may reside in me. See, God wants his people, Israel, Paul, you to never forget that his grace is sufficient for us, that his strength is made perfect in weakness. If you seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, Jesus tells us all these things will be added to you. Do you trust, church, that your Father in heaven 
sustain everyone that he saves. He's going to feed everyone that he frees. He's done it over and over again for Israel. Church, at this point, what does he have to do to earn their trust? God has a track record of providing for his people that extends all the way back to creation. He has a personal history of providing for you as long as you've been alive. Church, why do we struggle to trust him? I'm going to do something here that I don't do often. Um, I'll do a little object lesson. The reason I don't do this often, just so you know, is that I think of these things a lot, but I, I don't ever want us to remember the illustration. I want us to remember the truth from Scripture. And so sometimes when we do things like this, it, the illustration can stand out to us. So I hope that that's not what happens today. But I'm going to, I'm going to do something now that I may regret. Who knows? Um, I've regretted things publicly before. It won't be the first time. Uh, so let me see here. Can I have Declan? You're close. Come here, Declan. Now, this morning we had a group of, uh, so as a lot of you know, we're, we're refinishing this, uh, uh, hang out right here for a minute. Um, we're refinishing this, you will not be harmed, and I, I can't really promise that. Um, his parents said it's fine, so they're upstairs, it's good. He signed a, med- we have a medical release on you, right? It's good. Um, that covered this too. Um, we're in the process of uh, re- remodeling a room over here for a nursing and cry room, and there was a great big uh, bookshelf in there made out of the Cypress of Lebanon or Cedars of Lebanon or something. I know it's huge, it's heavy. Uh, and there were some high school guys that carried it up to the upstairs room where it's going to live. Some of you are here, right? If you were a part of that group, raise your hand. Good, you guys were. Okay, I saw, yep. Uh, and all right, you guys come on up too. You're going to help me with something. Ethan, you can come help too. You're strong. Is Noah here still? Noah's here. Yeah, come on, Noah. You can come up too. All right, here's what I want you to do. I want you, they're not going to hurt you, I hope. I think they're going to help you. Um, Can you stand on this? I think you can. All right, are you familiar with the concept of a trust fall, Declan? You're not. See, what a trust fall is, um, is these guys, so we've got, hang on, I need to move some musical instruments here. Declan, don't fall. If you fall, fall backwards. So, fellas, we've got one, two, three, four, oh, good, six. That's how many pallbearers you need. Okay, Um, so, Declan, uh, three of you on that side, three of you on this side. Do you trust these guys? These guys are strong. I mean, these guys lift weights. Um, They're wearing flannel and boots. I mean, those are the kind of guys I trust in life. So, so Declan, do you trust the guys? Do you think that if you were to just lean back and fall, that they would catch you? I probably should have got the cheerleaders up here for this. I don't know. Um, but do you trust that these guys would catch you? You don't. For the purpose of the all right. All right, all right, we're going to try this again. <clears throat> Excuse me. Declan, do you trust that these good, strong guys here will catch you? Good, all right, so. All right, so Declan, don't move until I count to three, okay? I'm going to count to three, and then you guys have all done it. You've been in youth group long enough. We've done goofy trust fall at some point, right? Okay, the idea is to not let Declan die. You're all on the same page. Good, okay. All right, so I want to count to three, Declan, okay? So don't do anything until I count to three. Are you ready? You good? You want to say bye to mom and dad or anything? No, okay, good. All right, one, two. So you trust these guys, right? All right, good. Hang on, pause. So I haven't got to three yet, so don't go anywhere. All right, let me trade here. All right, Dallas, come here. All right, Shannon. All right, Camden. You're you're done. All right, Braxton. Okay. All right, Randall. All right. Adley, all right, who's, who's left? Okay, 
All right, one, two, three, six. Okay, you guys can go have a seat. You're done. Thank you. And Declan's done too. But um, no. now, Declan. Hey, three, three on each side. Okay, three. Don't stand right behind him. That would end badly. All right, Declan. Now, on the count of three, Declan. One. I'm just kidding. They're a lot more excited. You don't try. Do you think if I really counted to three that you would fall back? No. What do you have with the other guys? So you think they can catch you? <laughs> I don't know. All right, hop down. Here, I'll, I'll help you down. Don't, don't fall and die. All right. Thank you all for helping us. You can go back and sit down. Good job. You didn't drop anybody. No one died. All right. Church, when we look back at what God has done for us, about the stuff that he's already saved us from, about the rescue that he has given us, and we look at the circumstances that we're facing, whether it's a diagnosis, whether it's a hard job, whether it's physical pain, whether it's something really hard that he's called us to go through that we've never been through before like Israel is doing here. We're perched on a ledge just like that. We're looking back at God and we're saying, I don't really think you're going to catch me. That's what Israel says over and over again when they disobey God. So he gives them this memorial. Remember what I did. And trust that I'm going to catch you tomorrow. And often we climb to the top of the stool or whatever the thing is that we're doing. And we look back at God and we say, yeah, you're definitely not strong enough to catch me. That's what Israel's doing here. When they go out to try to gather on their own, when, when they continually disobey God, they look at God and they say, I don't think, I don't, I've either forgotten what you've done for me or I don't think you're going to keep doing it. He gives them this as a memorial to remember that he's strong enough to catch them no matter what the circumstances they're facing. I mean, remember what he's already done for them, right? He got them out of slavery. They've gone through the plagues. They saw the Nile turn to blood. They saw the Red Sea recede. They walked through, and they saw the most powerful army on earth get demolished when those waves came crashing back in. What more does God have to do? And he gives them something to remember. He's given us stuff to remember, too. Think about baptism and the Lord's Supper. They, they serve the function of a memorial, don't they? They're not just afterthoughts that we can ignore. They're, they're means of grace designed to bring the Word of God to us, to life. It comes audibly in the reading and preaching of Scripture, but when we see baptism, when we experience it for ourselves, when we hold the bread and the cup in our hands, we have this powerful reminder, specifically of that jar of manna right there. We have the the, the bread that God breaks for us that's supposed to point us to the true bread of heaven, this greatest provision that God has ever given to us. God has given us church-wide memorials, remembrances that he's going to take care of us and ultimately that he's going to redeem us. That's the third thing we're called to trust in here, trust in God's redemption. Verse 35 tells us that the Israelites ate manna until they came to the promised land. 40 years of the same food. Now, I have kids that could eat chicken nuggets for 40 years and be just fine, but most people can't eat the same thing over and over again for 40 years. It doesn't even say Israel complained about it here, though maybe they did. God, the, the point is that God provided for 40 years. And the significance of it 
even though that's a miracle, and I point it out again and again, God is performing supernatural miracles here. He is flexing his muscle just a little bit to care for his people. But the significance isn't even in this miracle. It's in what this miracle points us to. In John 6, there's a huge crowd that has attended Jesus' ministry as he preached and taught them and fed them miraculously and performed all these miracles. And and they begin to question him. Really, they're asking him to do more tricks. Do more for us, Jesus. You fed us. Do it again. Do something else. And Jesus says in John 6, 31, Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, just as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, Moses didn't give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven, for the bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. No one who comes to me will ever be hungry, and no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. Church, the the center of our satisfaction is found right there. Jesus was enough so that you don't have to be. Because you can't be. You're not enough. Jesus is. If you find yourself constantly complaining, if you find yourself constantly discontent with the way that your life is going, constantly disappointed by the people around you, let Jesus be enough for you. Stop killing yourself by not resting. Stop sabotaging your own growth, your own sanctification by disobeying God's clear commands. That was part of Israel's problem, right? God said, do this. They decide to do that, and they find out they're not happy. They're not fulfilled. They're not satisfied. Break that sinful habit. You've been busy running in every direction, seeking the answer for that thing that's missing in your heart. And the harder you've run, the more that need has been felt. It's grown. Church, you're never going to find what you're looking for in a promotion, in a pension, in a person, in a pill, or in a new plan. Jesus is the bread of life. If you're trying to sustain yourself on anything else, you're going to starve. No one who comes to Jesus will ever need again. We sang Great is Thy Faithfulness earlier, right? That line there, morning by morning, new mercies I see, that grows out of this text. Every morning, they physically saw the new mercies of God. Those mercies are new every day for us as well. You never need again if you belong to Jesus. Does your heart really believe that? And recognize that it's okay to say no because we're, we're pointed towards something here, right? We're all growing in this together. The back half of, Israel, of Exodus is all about sanctification, all about growing in Christ. And so you can look at your life and say, I don't trust that I never need again because you don't know what I'm facing. You don't know what this situation is. You don't know what this family dynamic is. You don't know about this work struggle. You don't know about this health struggle. And I don't, but God does. And Jesus says that he's enough, church, to carry you through it. His grace for you will never run out. And that should change the way that we live our lives every day. Go back to the very beginning of our text. Verse 21 says that they gathered it Every morning. They walked in daily dependence on God to provide. They trusted every morning that after they gathered what they needed, God would provide again tomorrow. It's one step at a time. One day at a time. 
obey. You, you can't obey tomorrow yet, right? Sometimes when our, uh, when, our, when our kids do things that they get disciplined for, they'll get grounded from something or a privilege taken away, and, and they'll ask, well, what do I have to do to earn that back? And often it's, well, just be, do the thing you're already supposed to do. And we can't give it back to you today because you haven't done that yet. We can't obey tomorrow yet, church. We can just obey today. And so the way that we begin to trust, the way that we begin to be content with the circumstances God has put us in is to obey today. And to, to fully trust God, to, to fully know uh, God, we've got to know his word. The Israelites would have been lost if God didn't tell them what was happening. They didn't just wake up one morning and found that bread had fallen from heaven and think they were at Lambert's or that some weird thing had happened or people had been baking all night. They didn't, they didn't wake up confused. God had told them what was going to happen. Church, God has given us instruction by which to live life. And if we're going to grow, if we're going to learn to trust, it's got to be in His Word. We're going to learn it as His Holy Spirit teaches us through His Word. Trust in His Word. Live in His Word. Make His Word a part of your regular weekly rest. Bank on those memorials. Bank on what God has done in the past for you and trusting that He'll get you through tomorrow as well. And be pointed toward the redemption that God promises us. The beginning of the book of Philippians, I'll close with this. Paul's writing to this church that he loves, and he knows their hearts. He knows they belong to God. And he knows they're going through some really hard stuff. And, and, and I, I close with this because I know some of you are going through some really hard stuff as well. And Paul writes this, I'm sure of this that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Whatever God started in you, church, if you belong to him, he grew your salvation, he started that, and he's going to carry you through to the end of this life and to the glory of the next. Not because you're awesome, but because he is, and because he is enough. We just have to trust. Would you pray with me? God, you are trustworthy. You are fully worthy of our trust. When nothing else is, when everything else fails, you have promised to provide for the needs of your people. And God, you do that in so many ways that we never, that never even cross our mind, God. You provide the air that we breathe. You provide the beating of our heart. You provide each second of every day. You keep the world knitted together by your power, by your strength. You sustain us, God. And we come to you as your people asking that you would help us to trust you. Help us to demonstrate our trust by being willing to rest, by being willing to obey, by being willing to to look back on and celebrate your goodness to us. Or just in this gathering, it's a weekly reminder that you're good, that you've accomplished something for us, that you're going to draw all your people to you, not just this church, but all of your people across all time, across all places. God, you're going to draw us to you in eternity, and we'll gather just like this with people who come from all sorts of backgrounds, and we'll worship our King.
God, thank you for establishing this church gathering as a rhythm for us. Remember this day. So many of us look at the world around us and we are we just feel a discontent in our hearts, an unsettledness, God. We didn't think life would go this way. We had different plans. We, we wanted more or we wanted things that happened that have never happened, God, and yet you have sent us on our own personal wilderness wandering. And Father, we pray that in the midst of that, we'd still even yet be able to trust and obey, that you are the God who loves us, that you are the God who provides for us, that you are a God who cares about us and will give us what we need. Even when we don't think it's what we need. Help us to trust you enough to fall into your arms, we pray in your son's name. And all God's people say, Amen.